Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Brian Dolan, a Los Angeles-based mathematician, inventor, and cyberneticist. Brian excels at translating complex business problems into tractable mathematical solutions. He leverages 10 years of C-level experience with premier brands such as MySpace, Yahoo, Greenplum, and Deep6 AI. He also advises multiple companies from seed to growth stage. Currently, Brian leads Verdant AI, an innovation lab and startup studio that advances technological breakthroughs in AI with a special focus on health and ecology. Hi, Brian. Thank you for joining the season finale of the Digisection podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Where does this podcast find you? I'm working out of Northeast Los Angeles right now, where our headquarters are. If I look out my window, I can see downtown LA, and it's kind of a muggy day. It's a muggy, hot day. <laughs> LA weather. Brian, I'd love to start with a very short intro about Verdant AI. Tell us more about your current company. Yeah, absolutely. So Verdant AI is a startup studio focused on primarily digital health and climate-related products. And that focus comes from my sort of personal goals, my personal interests in what we can use AI for to make the world a better place. And most of our products are, uh, you know, obviously digital products, and they need to be some sort of advanced analytic-driven idea. Mm -hmm. We work with founders, we work with investors, we identify problems in the market, and we say, can we build a solution or a product for this? And is that solution or product sufficiently complex to make it worth having us do it as opposed to having somebody else do it uh, sort of, you know, in a more standardized fashion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our listeners are mainly Series C to Series A, digital health founders. And, you know, some of them are already having AI as part of their solutions, but some are still thinking and trying to understand the space in order to add AI as core of the products in the future. Could you start by explaining us the current definition of AI? Well, that is up to some debate and I, what I would call a peculiar view of what AI really is. There's a lot of talk lately about the difference between machine learning, you know, ML versus AI. And I think that none of it really matters. I think that the machine learning crowd comes out of the deep learning space, which is inspired by the stuff that Hinton did many years ago. So they have a view of the world that is all very data-driven and they want to brand it as machine learning. Whereas the artificial intelligence legacy goes back about 70 years to Bell Labs and people like Norbert Wiener and Claude Shannon who created this as a space. So when we're talking about a definition of it, it's meant a lot of different things over the last 70 years. Usually it is, what is the latest fad in math that can do something that surprises us by how cool it is? I myself actually proposed a mathematical definition of AI in a recent book that was centered on the notion of information theory that came out of Claude Shannon and the idea of an AI being a system that can produce a message, that can take a message and return a message that provides information. And it's a very technical definition, but it allows me to sort of operate in the space as how do I know I'm doing something that I can call artificial intelligence? And having this mathematical definition allows me to have a touch point 
when I'm trying to design product? Am I just, you know, moving data around? Am I building a database or am I doing something a little more advanced? And I, to boil all of that down, I would say, for me, there's no one clear definition of, you know, no one clear casual definition of AI, but it has to at least satisfy the minimum requirement that you can be surprised by the answer and it actually answers a question. It's not like a constant. It's not something that is obvious or unchanging. It needs to answer a question in a way that is slightly surprising. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great definition. And could you talk to us about the ways in which AI could impact our civilization and the most significant ways in which it could actually change our current lives? Yeah, I think there are a lot of big, scary analogies and big, happy analogies. And it's definitely going to have an enormous impact or it was already having an enormous impact on society. People, I think I've been hearing the term, you know, artificial intelligence is the new electricity. And I I think that's 100% true. There's not an aspect of our lives that electricity hasn't touched in some way, shape or form. And I think that AI will do the same thing. But I also think that the visibility of AI is going to continue to recede as people just start using it in things and start using it in different products, they'll stop calling it AI. I mean, that's its actual history is things that you would have called AI 20 years ago are now just part of a product. So when you're deciding how you're going to do navigation and you're using Waze, you know, that was called AI when it first came out, like people moving through cities using Waze. This is using artificial intelligence. In a couple of years, we won't call it that anymore because artificial intelligence tends to be reserved for stuff that seems exciting and new. That's how people use the term. They wouldn't use it for perceptrons anymore or control systems. But in terms of how it's going to impact us as a society in the future, it's going to touch everything. However, I want to be more specific and say that the ubiquity of data is the driver there and that we can now collect information. We can choose to collect information. Mm -hmm. And anywhere you can collect information, presumably, or collect data, presumably when you get data, you get information. And so you can make decisions as you go. Again, back to the definition of it has to make a slightly surprising decision. And that's going to happen in everything from homelessness to obviously the internet to, you know, microplastics in the ocean. All of these things will be touched, hopefully in a positive way. Mm -hmm by advances in artificial intelligence and the fact that the data is now flowing through the Internet of Things or the digital twins or whatever you want to call it now. Mm -hmm. And in one of your previous talks, you've mentioned the importance of understanding how AI reflects our culture. You know, for me personally, it's such an interesting concept. Could you expand on that? Oh, absolutely, because that's one of my favorite topics, honestly. And it's one of those ones you don't typically have with investors or entrepreneurs. (laughs) But (laughs) in the same way that, you know, Art reflects culture. AI reflects culture. It's a thing that is telling us more about who we are. And the dark kind of illustration of that is when you talk about like bias in police profile, right? Uh, There have been numerous algorithms that have been shown to basically say every black person is a criminal. That's terrible. But that is a reflection using artificial intelligence of our culture. And when we start to decide what is intelligence or what decisions have to be made, we are bringing our culture to it. And when people look around and they start thinking about how bad things can go, they look to our dark side. They look to the terrible things we'll do. And just about a month ago, an autonomous attack drone in Turkey started to attack troops and could not be stopped. That's awful as well. You know, we're all worried about that. 
But that's our culture going into it. It is not necessarily people deciding that they want to build a killer robot, although academically building a killer robot would be a lot of fun. Just don't open the door, don't let it out, because <laughs> it doesn't get out in the world. I think that we realize that it is our culture that is creating these intelligences, then we can make better choices about what parts of our culture go into it, about what parts of our culture we want to reflect in ourselves, and we can use it to study our own choices. How come we developed a system that targets all Black people as criminals? That's a good reflection of ourselves and a good way to have a conversation, an analytical conversation about our own biases and prejudices. So everything that we come up with, if I'm going to tell you what book you should read, that's a reflection of my culture being pushed through something people are going to call an artificial intelligence or what movie you should watch next or where you should go for dinner. Mm -hmm. All of those things are culture being sort of made programmatic. For better or for worse, it really is our input. Let's not put garbage in. We have that choice. Okay, let's now move on to my favorite part. Let's move on to healthcare. We'd love to understand the story behind Deep Six AI. So tell us more about the problem you solved, the product, and the company growth. Yeah, Deep Six was a company I started that I grew out of a former company of mine focused on natural language processing. And the company immediately before that was primarily servicing the U.S. intelligence community. So we were working with, you know, the spies. And our role there was to read through massive amounts of text data and find trends in who was talking to who about what. Mm -hmm. So we developed a lot of intellectual property there, a lot of different techniques. And we decided to move out of that space for a variety of reasons. I brought in a partner to run Deep Six, and we decided we were going to go into healthcare. Healthcare is something I have a deep background in. One of my degrees is from a medical school, uh, UCLA here in Los Angeles. And we started looking around for business models where we could use this rather, you know, fun technology to read all of this text and we could read medical text. And it was challenging, honestly, to find what the business model was. We were sort of that ever-present hammer in search of a nail until we met with a person, a researcher at Cedar sinai who explained to us the difficulty in finding patients for clinical trials. And a key part of that issue is that the interesting parts of the clinical record, the patient record, are actually within the physician notes. They're in the unstructured text. And the moment we heard that, we were, you know, turned on because we know we could do text. And we were like, well, we have lots of tools for understanding natural language, and maybe we could make a dent in that. So we pivoted our business model towards clinical trials and trying to find patients to match trials. A very complicated, you know, very painful space from pharma, like pharmaceutical companies can lose millions of dollars a day on a delayed trial. And that's the number one cause of delaying trials is not finding patients. So we tackled that problem. We made some really good progress. We did our very first demo. They had had a trial open for about a year, a little over a year, and they were looking for 60-ish patients. I don't remember the exact numbers now. And we found them 50 patients within five minutes. And they'd been looking for a year and a half. And that was just fantastic. That was very satisfying. So we went live at our flagship. And then our very next thing was we were dealing with um, pediatric heart research, where they were trying to find patients for teenagers to get this particular cardiac treatment. And we were able to place 12 people into this trial almost immediately. And so that was extremely gratifying to know that because of the technology that we've been developing and we've been working on for years, that these 12 kids at least will have a shot at really good care, like cutting edge clinical care, research level care, and hopefully solve their problems. And I don't know how that trial ended or even if it has ended at this point, 
But it was a good day when I got to go home and feel like I had done something for, you know, a dozen kids whose parents were probably fraught with fear. I know I would be. And so that kind of motivation has pushed me through a large chunk of my career. What can I do to make the world actually physically better? And that day I felt like I'd done something. That's an amazing story. And Brian, based on your learnings with Deep Six AI, what are your thoughts on creating products for health systems? How to actually make hospitals, providers, and researchers use them? How to build something useful for this group? When I was in my previous career and I was building products, I've been building AI products for about 25 years. And in my previous career, I was dealing with a lot of standard enterprises like banks, government institutions, major media companies. Those users had a lot more time and I want to say sort of flexibility in what they could do with their day. Mm -hmm. And one of the brutal facts of dealing with the healthcare system, especially if you're dealing with physicians or clinicians of any form, is that they have no time and they have a singular focus of what they need to do today. And some of my old product strategies, you know, I've had some really successful products in the past. Some of my old product strategies about the lighters and cool graphics, that didn't really help so much. <laughs> they want their answer. They want it now. They want it in a format that is digestible. <laughs> and they don't want to be bothered with your cool graphic. You know, get it out of the way so they can do things. And so getting those end users on the clinical side is directly at odds with you also have to support their IT infrastructure. So you're talking to their technical folks who do want to see all that cool stuff. And they're kind of controlling purchasing. So it becomes a balancing act of like the physicians want to see something really kind of plain and very immediate and very practical. But when you're dealing with the technical buyers who are going to do the database integration, it needs to be a lot more colorful and have a butterfly on it or something. And that really disrupts your workflow and how you're going to do your user experience. We have a question sent by one of our listeners, Jen from Boston. And knowing you'll be the next guest, she asked, how to create an MVP of an AI-driven product in healthcare. You know, the deeper meaning of this question is, as I think that in most cases, the minimum viable product equals extremely important features for the end user that bring value, but are also easy and relatively quick to code. Whereas people often think that AI is something super complicated with lots of data. So is that even possible to build an MVP of an AI-related product? That's a great question. And frankly, most of the healthcare startups I know that are doing any kind of data-related product have this exact issue. So your question is spot on and you're not alone. So don't feel bad, Jen. Like there's lots of people struggling with this. <laughs> um, so I would say there's a couple things on that. The first one is um, one really good way to get your MVP used quickly is to partner with a hospital if you can, right? Like this is an option for you and you have associates or a potential client at a hospital and you can get the BAA signed, which of course always takes some time. Then that is a good way to kind of get data flowing through the system. If you've done healthcare products before, you know that there are basically two flavors of data access in healthcare systems. And one of those is operational data analysis and the other one is clinical care data analysis. The operational data people tend to be your IT and technical people, and they're allowed to look at data for operational purposes, which means they have actually much better access than physicians do. So if you are able to, when you're constructing your pilot, 
get associated with those departments, they can provide you data uh, much more quickly and much easier. Of course, they don't have the interesting problem that the physicians do. So how do you get a partnership with a hospital? Well, accelerators are really great for that. A lot of the major hospitals, a lot of the major healthcare systems are now doing accelerators and bringing companies in because they understand that this is one of the key problems to doing a data product in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I myself actually graduated from the Techstars Cedar sinai Healthcare Accelerator back in uh, 100 years ago, whenever it was, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and then you became a mentor, right? Yes. Yeah. For my class in, in 2018. Yeah. So I've been mentoring there for a while as well. And then, you know, the, when we're dealing with that, even they do run into that issue, but luckily they're much more closely associated with Cedars. So on the one hand, if you can get into an accelerator, they will provide you the data. Now, let's pretend that you're just completely shut out and you have to do it entirely on your own with the data. There actually, there used to be UC San Diego, they had an entire set of training data for physicians to train on medical records. They provide these things for medical students. They say, this is, you know, the patient record and it shows their history and you have to diagnose this person from this note. So I used that data set early on as a set of hospital record or uh, health records that we could train our NLP on. So you can sometimes find those if you go to the research hospitals, they sometimes provide public data as training for their students. I think you'll probably be able to find something like that. So the last part of your question on how complicated does it need to be? Yeah, building AI is, is challenging in exactly that respect because sometimes it's really simple and sometimes it's really hard. The way I've gotten around that multiple times is to just sit back and decide on exactly what is my value proposition that I want to demonstrate. And how simply can I do one value proposition? I find that people who are trying to build these solutions tend to overcomplicate things or think about multiple points in the workflow. So, you know, data loading is often really hard. Data normalization is hard. Doing the analysis, doing the clustering is often hard. Doing the reporting is often hard. Find the one sort of tip of the spear place where you want to provide value and only do that because as you know, you clearly have experience with these products can get extraordinarily complex very quickly. And you're just going to drown if you're trying to do all of this before you get your seed round. So I think that's a good place to start. The other thing, talk to people who've done it, you know, reach out to other entrepreneurs and they'll give you shortcuts or maybe they know where the data set is, or maybe they've, found a cool library that makes what you're about to do a lot easier. So the communicating back and forth in the community is pretty key for how we operate business. We're always thinking community first, and we're trying to do as little as possible and just get straight to the core value proposition. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. And let me ask you one quick follow-up question to that. So say there's a founder, a non-technical founder, that's the important part, And this person is trying to create the first version of a new product. And they have already a well-defined persona. They know who they're building for. They know what is the core feature. And so when it comes to the AI part, should they start hiring or should they outsource a ready-to-act team with a well-defined experience in the field? My instinct is to say do not hire any, any earlier than you have to. Um, and I feel like this is true for startups in general. For instance, you know, people, the the cartoon of a startup in this world is, you know, a tech guy, a business guy, $300,000 in a garage, right? And they're supposed to change the world from that sort of small launch pad. Mm -hmm. 
I find a lot of people on the, the sort of the business side, if you want to call it that, are off seeking their CTO. And they're about to give up half their company, a CTO that may or may not share their vision. They're also giving up a huge amount of control on what the product will actually be. Because the CTO is probably the person who's going to execute it. And they're going to make a bunch of decisions along the way that are going to change the vision of the product. There is nothing wrong with that. But if it's somebody you just met and you don't really have a long history with, you're not going to end up with the product you started out shooting for. I think that if you are the non-technical co-founder and you're trying to do an AI product, the more time you spend in design, like sit down and just take out a piece of paper and write out the workflow. The more time you spend in thinking through the decisions that have to be made, you will reduce the amount of work that the engineering and or ML AI people are going to have to do. And that will provide you a lot more clarity and control over what they end up building. So it's okay to spend more time thinking about it and spending time designing, spending time in Figma. We're big fans of Figma at Verdant. Verdant's always using Figma to make any kind of decision. And Figma is like a prototyping tool. Mm -hmm. It's basically a drawing pad. Find something like that that you can communicate effectively with and spend your time there rather than searching for a CTO because you'll end up having a much clearer vision, but your time to execution will be much quicker. And also you'll find that you don't need, you know, you don't need the high paid, high value engineering talent if you can really kind of rub it down to the part that's important. I think that having that clarity will improve the entire product, will improve your communication with whoever you bring in. And you'll find out that probably a lot of what you thought was probably an AI problem is not. It's really just a BI problem or a workflow problem. Mm. And then you can bring something in. I have two more quick thoughts on that. The first one is when you're hiring somebody who calls themselves a data scientist or ML AI, they have a particular background of tool set. It's a very broad field, mathematics. So you don't know if you need their particular tool set. You don't know if you have a deep learning problem or a computer vision problem at that moment. So you need time to evolve the problem or decide what skill set you need. So don't just jump on the first person. And the other one is to consider working with startup studios because a lot of startup studios have that talent in-house or adjacent to that talent. And they're hungry for entrepreneurs who have an idea and want to take it to the next level. Now, that means you're getting a co-founder and they're going to take a chunk of what you're doing. But Mm -hmm. in my opinion, it's worth it to have the infrastructure around you to help launch your idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. And trying to wrap up the healthcare talk, what are the differences between exploring data in retail and healthcare? Yeah, I think that there are some very obvious differences and there are some not so obvious differences. One of the things that is immediately apparent is that data within healthcare is much more precious. It's extremely important that you have good, verifiable mm-hmm. data. And you know the data itself is valuable. And if you leak it, it can be harmful. Like you don't want to leak personally identified information, which makes it harder to work with because there's a lot of regulation around healthcare data. Also, healthcare problems have that in general. You have to be a lot better at what you do. You can't just sort of willy-nilly, you know, uh, recommend a a drug, for instance, the way you can recommend a movie. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to say, hey, you should see this movie and be wrong and nobody dies. With healthcare, you have to be a lot more conservative. Mm -hmm. When you're examining the data within healthcare, there's a lot of challenges in the integration efforts, partially because the healthcare systems out there just don't interoperate very well, despite a lot of national efforts to make that happen. It's still just not 
occurring that you can have access in a uniform way to all the data that you seek. The oncology or the, like the histology data will be in a completely different data set. Some of the biometric data from the emergency room will be in a completely different warehouse. So all these things are not integrated typically, and they're difficult to integrate. And you don't have the retail advantage, the, the advantage they have in retail is just having a boss say, we're going to bring it all into the same place. So I think that when you're dealing with the healthcare data, it's a lot more interesting. It's a lot more nuanced because a lot of it comes back to opinion and physicians trying to express something they don't really understand entirely. If you sell a shoe in retail, that's a shoe that you sold. When somebody comes in and they have a complaint, a primary complaint, you don't always know what it is. So we're sort of dancing around trying to understand even the nature of the engagement. So that data is a lot more nebulous and requires a lot more expertise to unpack. You can't just assume that there's an answer in the data on what's really going on in this patient. So you want to be respectful of the domain knowledge that your users have developed, but also understand that you know they have their shortcomings. On the retail side, I've done a lot of retail side. You know, the, it's a lot easier to kind of decide. Well, we sold 300 units in Canada, so next year we'll probably sell 310 units. And we know why people are buying things or we have a sense of it. It's much cleaner to work in retail data, despite how fast or voluminous it may be. You're going to be a lot more satisfied with the amount of analysis you can do. On the healthcare side, you got to be prepared to kind of slow down, really think through the problems, understand that the data will be self-inconsistent frequently because people's conditions change, and also be self-inconsistent because the physicians or the experts and clinicians you're talking to often have disparate opinions on what the data means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it from my own experience and talking with the older dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's now pivot to Verdant products and projects. So something really interesting for me and I guess also our listeners. Tell us more about the concept and applications behind the mysterious name E9000. <laughs> yeah, this one's getting a lot of attention lately, which delights me. I've been called about the E9000 three times in the last month, which is just fantastic. I don't know what happened in the zeitgeist. <laughs> so first I have to explain that we have this tradition of making silly names for our internal projects just because it's funny. And we often get called out when people say, what is the E9000? Like, it was never meant to be called the E9000. <laughs> it was just like this funny robot thing that I came up with when we were starting the project. We have one called Trial Mix. You know, we have one called Grammy. Uh, just these weird names. So the name itself has little or no meaning. <laughs> but, but what is it? So it's actually, it was inspired by a couple of different things. But we're, oh, let me actually tell you where it ended up rather than where it's inspired by so it's a product around virtual reality that is meant to help people creating virtual reality experiences manage assets, but manage particular kinds of assets. These assets are typically medical assets. So if you're trying to do a recreation of an operating room, there's a certain sort of digital twinning view of the world that you have to have with medical devices that you don't have with other standard assets. It's not just, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just a scalpel. It has to have, because of the setting, it has to have a particular grade of steel. It has to have these things. But the real thing that we feel the value is, is that it allows people to control the experience from medical language. And the way we're seeing that, the most interest in that is in using a virtual reality for psychotherapy. 
or other psychiatric or psychological treatments because you can do things like deal with people who are opioid addicts. You put them in virtual reality and you expose them to triggers for their disorder. So one of the ones that's interesting to me is that many people who are heroin users get triggered by pizza boxes Mm -hmm. because that's their culture of how they shot up heroin is they would sit around with their friends and order a pizza and that triggers their addiction. And so we can create these virtual experiences and put a pizza box in the middle of this room in order to get them to, you know, sort of confront their addiction in a very specific way. And the E9000 was built for that kind of user in mind, somebody who is trying to treat a patient who has some very specific things they need to do. And it's all within sort of a medical context. So we incorporate the health record. Uh, we can incorporate medical language in the description of the rooms and the description of the, the scenarios. And we're looking now to start a, uh, a series of, we're hoping to start a series of trials with a particular psychiatrist. I actually think it's Dr. Brandon Burkhead. I think he's the first psychiatrist with a VR residency. It's something that he's pioneering in virtual reality for psychiatry beyond just psychology or therapy. He's taking it into psychiatry and we're looking forward to hopefully getting some trials going with him to see if the E9000 could be useful at that level of care. It's a pretty intense level and and we'd really like to participate. Mm-hmm. So that's the product, the silly name for actually a rather important feature, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also noticed that you're doing another thing connected with mental and behavioral health. Yeah. A project called Humanitarian AI for Recovery Centers. Tell us more. So that was inspired by a really sort of tragic space in the addiction and recovery space. When you look into it and you see the people who are dying of opioid addiction, they're dying for dumb reasons. You know, if I can just be that kind of blunt, like they're not getting the treatment they need. There are plenty of empty recovery houses Mm -hmm. out there that can use patients and plenty of addicts that need to be in those beds. And they're not making that match. So we ended up partnering with a company called RecoverWell, who are placing addicts into these rehab clinics. And they're doing important work there. And as we were learning about the problem and learning about some of the things that these addicts are going through, we started understanding that there's a fairly extensive journey on recovery. You know, obviously you say that it seems like a platitude, but we're beginning to understand sort of the dimensions of it and how we can use analysis of their trajectory. How often do they leave the clinic and how often do they return to the clinic? Do they take their meds? Do they adhere? You know, they stay in these beds. We can use those touch points to inform, you know, a better analysis of the journey of addiction and the journey of recovery. Mm-hmm. And so we've been trying to uh, leverage that knowledge in order to improve that space a bit. It's a very complicated, very difficult space to be working in, very low budgets, very heartbreaking stories all the time. But we're hoping to, you know, contribute our bit to it and make that a much more effective industry. Let's get now very technical as for this podcast. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the OTT environment. Yeah, so OTT is a pretty interesting space. It's sort of the other side of the value spectrum from what we often work on. OTT means over-the-top media. And the idea here, as you know, last year really emphasized, was that there are content producers who want to deliver content directly to consumers. So typically, like a movie studio will make a movie and then they'll have a distributor take it to movie theaters. Mm -hmm. You know, people will sit in the theaters and they'll pay the theater and the theater moves the money back. 
But over-the-top media is stuff like Netflix, now where they're generating their own content and sending it to consumers. Or, uh, you know, things like the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is actually broadcasting games from what they call their league pass. So you can watch a basketball game directly from the NBA as opposed to through a major network who would normally show it. So that's OTT Media. And we were approached about a major sports league. They were trying to understand how to manage their OTT marketing and development spend. And it's not the kind of thing we normally take on. But I have to say the problem was so interesting and the math behind it was so interesting that we picked it up. We decided to work on it. And it's just it was just kind of too cool to pass, honestly. And the thing that made it interesting was we got to use econometric modeling from the 70s and 80s, a thing called Shapley values. Okay. And Shapley values are there to help you figure out what in a set of data is really driving a metric. So like what is really driving their revenue? What of these 40 different things is really driving their revenue? There's a lot of models and mathematical techniques that do that, that will do what they call feature selection, pick out which one's driving it. But the Shapley values were really well suited for this problem we had because reasons. I don't want to get too technical unless you want me to. But, but the thing about the Shapley values is that they were invented as a technique back in the 70s and 80s within game theory when nobody really thought about massive data sets. And so we had this 70s game theory theorem mm-hmm and technique that needed to be applied to a very, very large data set over you know, multiple dimensions, and that which is too sexy, honestly. Um, so we, we, went and we had to write a whole, we had to write our own routine for even how to adapt the problem to the data uh, that was a fairly sophisticated routine to even do the sampling. And in doing so, you know, you learn a lot about how OTT exists and how like the statistical analysis of digital media is still pretty fun. <laughs> I mean, just from a pure enjoyability point of view, OTT is a, is a lot of fun. You know, I, I wasn't putting teenagers into a cardiatric clinical trial, but it was fun. <laughs> so I got a couple times with how hard it was. And that's exactly how we like into the math to come back and say, you're not doing it right at least three or four times, and, and it was good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you, Brian, love to think about the future of humanity and the world and where we're going. Let me ask you this question. Where do you see the future of AI in, say, 5, 15, and 50 years from now? Well, so 50, I have no idea. I will say that there are some trends that are pretty interesting that I think are going to have a big impact. And one of the ones I like, there's, let me bring up two. One is one I've spoken about several times in the past, and that is uh, high-performance computing. High-performance computing is the kind of computing and simulation you do if you're the National Weather Service and you have billions of points and you have large-scale differential equations you have to model. Now, typically, that has to be done on really specific, very expensive hardware, but there's been some fascinating examples of how people are commoditizing high performance computing, especially in a programming language I'm fond of called Chapel. Mm -hmm. And Chapel allows you to do HPC style computing on much smaller systems. And it's a really great language to program in. It's it's more fun than, than most of the other languages I've dealt with. But it allows you to do this kind of compute that has only really been reserved for major uh, integrators Mm -hmm. for a a long time. And the thing about that is the current sort of trend on GPUs and deep learning is inspired by a kind of mathematics that is very matrix-based and was accelerated because we could use GPUs. With high-performance computing, we can distribute the compute in a different way 
that is fundamentally different than how it's being done with deep learning. And that's going to allow us to do these very high communication sorts of techniques, things like genetic algorithm, where there has to be a lot of communication between every node, things like graph-based semi-supervised learning, where every data point has to know something about other data points. And so HPC, I think, is going to really bring us this opportunity to do a lot more graph-based stuff, which is sort of a natural structure for data, and to do things like genetic algorithms, which are these sort of very exploratory methods where we come up with answers that you know nobody would have thought of in the past because genetic algorithms are using pieces of information and reassembling them and kind of postulating new worlds. Um, and I think the HPC is really going to drive that. So that's a, that's a topic that I'm very excited about that is changing now. And in, in the next five years, I think it's going to show some prominence. At least I'm hoping so. The other one that I haven't really spoken about very much is the, the sort of the merger of econometric mathematics. In particular, I'm thinking of a field of game theory called mean field game theory. And uh, these mean field games are very sophisticated models of how of the dynamics of economic or other interrelated systems. And a lot of this is being driven by a group in uh, Toronto that are postulating brand new ways to sort of deal with hundreds of millions of agents who are making independent decisions in response to the overall system. So these are the highly independent autonomous agents who have to make a decision today on like how they're going to price their shoe or like. Uh, however, you know, they're going to make a metric. And the mean field games are interesting because they combine some very high-end probability theory that hasn't really been used commonly outside of the financial sector. Uh, a lot of this is very much like you know, algorithmic trading. But they also include a lot of uh, differential equations or stochastic differential equations. And why I point that out because the technology that is blending with is actually there's this whole resurgence of stochastic different what they're calling neural differential equations where we're taking a lot of the stuff from current deep learning and we're using those techniques kind of where they belong which is in solving for optimization problems right now a lot of the deep learning aficionados are using deep learning directly in order to make decisions and ignoring sort of the layer of information that the problem presented itself so like if you're in a financial market mm -hmm. everybody knows that you know certain things are a commodity and certain things are only traded in certain markets when you run deep learning against it deep learning system has to learn that or you have to tell it that whereas in things like stochastic differential equations that knowledge of the market and that domain knowledge is baked in already to how it's set up and so using neural differential equations, we can take these mean field games and use the deep learning part simply to solve the, the equation itself. So it's being used to augment that understanding within the equation. Like the equation, the, the differential equation will express the dynamic and we'll use the neural net to solve that equation as opposed to using the neural net to give us the answer. It's a deeper layer of usage of neural nets. I think it's pretty fascinating. I'm really turned on by this, uh, the, the research that's being done there. I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. And we're actually trying to develop a product right now in sort of the digital twin space around neural differential equations and using those to understand real world dynamical systems using sensor data. So that's a pretty exciting project and we're pretty early on that. So I think in the next five years, you'll see those things. You know, the, the questions about like 10 and 50 years is really around, tends to come down to around artificial general intelligence, which is 
such a chimera that I have no idea when or if that will ever exist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've been thinking for a long time that general intelligence, which is basically an AI that can do anything our brains can do, when will that happen? And I think people are confused by the recent advances in computer vision into thinking that's a truly intelligent system. Like we can have cars drive down the road and understand that that's a bicycle, that's a stop sign. But that's not the same thing as reasoning and planning. And one of my favorite examples around reasoning and planning is from the movie Terminator, where the Terminator, or especially Terminator 2, he figures out that he's looking for a child. And so he goes to call the parents of that child on a phone. That's planning. That is an AI coming up with a plan, reading the situation and coming up with a plan, which is just not accessible right now in most commercial applications. That's something I'm also kind of working on, not the Terminator, I promise, <laughs> but um, definitely working on the planning aspect and how we can teach these machines to think more holistically about the problem. That's a hard one, you know, like you say it at such a general level, there's not a lot there to grasp, but we have some ideas and stuff we're noodling on that we're hoping to bring into the market in a couple of years. But in 10 years, will we have AGI? I don't know, 50 years, same answer. It just seems to get further and further away from our grasp the closer we get. We think computer vision was it. It's not. We think that NLP was it. It's not. You know, I don't think that AGI is coming anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And by the way, have you ever thought about the possible ways of recreating the human brain with technology? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, my <laughs> that is what pushed me into graduate school and why I went to you know UCLA Medical School for Bioinformatics was the notion of recreating the brain, not just digitally. I think there's a lot of fun efforts being done to replicate the brain as a digital creature, but it's more fun to think in terms of wet lab. Like how do we take cells and recreate knowledge within a group of cells that were not a brain an hour ago, but now because we've expressed hormones within them or you know, introduced signals into the system, Can we create a brain from cells that were not a brain? That to me is really exciting and very interesting. It's extremely Frankenstein, I admit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you got to admit, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> to grow a brain in a jar? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I promise I won't teach it any bad words. <laughs> and Brian, let us end today our conversation with your recent inspirations. Is there anything our listeners should read or watch? Yes, I would say that there's several things that are inspiring me right now. And I think probably the one that I would like to point out to people is this book called The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. He's a physicist, and he has a point of view that the key human aspect is problem solving and that we need to realize that, you know, we are problem solvers implicitly and that we can solve any problem. And he has this very optimistic view of what the human brain can do that I find quite inspiring. He also has this really interesting point of view on environmentalism and evolution that is hard to get away from once you've heard. <laughs> that is that, you know, we like to think of the planet as our home and, you know, nature as Mother Earth. And, and he says, that's all bullshit. Because <laughs> nature hates us. It's trying to kill us all the time. There's no reason to believe that the Earth will provide. We exist because we take from the Earth. Now, you want to balance that with, like, he's not, you know, an extortionist or exploitive of the earth, but he wants people to really consider that if you were trying to live by yourself in the woods, 
you would die unless you're in a very easy woods to live in or unless you have particular skills. Like humans don't exist well in nature. And that's why we have this stuff around us. We've built it to make ourselves more comfortable. I have a friend who is a reality TV editor and he edits many of these reality TV shows where people go into the woods to try to survive. So that's sort of a recreation of what you know primitive man would be like. How well did they do? And he's like, terrible, <laughs> terrible. They get sick, they get hurt. You can barely make 20 days. You know, the stuff we have to edit out a lot of stuff that would just depress you when you think about how frail humans are in the wild. So, <laughs> so David Deutsch kind of, that's this, the pessimistic side. You know, nature is there to kill you. But that's fine. It's making us stronger. And our brains have evolved to be these like, problem-solving machines. So I find him very inspiring in terms of thinking what we could possibly get to. And it's it, his, his point is that it's basically infinite how far we can go. And that's hence, hence the title of the book. Brian, thank you for joining today and thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me.